Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. I hardly ever have good ideas for the shows. Most of those come from producers, but this one was my idea. And I actually do think it was pretty good. I suddenly realized that two of the major pop culture juggernauts of recent years are the musical Hamilton and Game of Thrones, and each of them deal a lot with the notions of illegitimacy. There's an awful lot of talk in both of them about bastards. Hamilton, of course, being of quote, unquote, illegitimate birth. And of course, Game of Thrones has 29 different characters who are bastards. So what is that all about? What's the historical nature even of that particular designation, bastard? We're gonna find out right after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Come, bastard. You don't have the men, you don't have the horses, and you don't have Winterfell. There's no need for a battle. You're right. Thousands of men don't need to die. Only one of us. <laughs> I keep hearing stories about you, bastard. The way people in the North talk about you, you're the greatest swordsman who ever walked. Maybe you are that good. Maybe not. I don't know if I'd beat you, but I know that my army will beat yours. Aye, you have the numbers. Will your men want to fight for you when they hear you wouldn't fight for them? (laughs) He's good. Very good. In the morning, then. Bastard. All right, so yes, we have been thinking about bastards, and so have you probably if you have been sitting here inhaling the pile drivers. I guess you don't really inhale a pile driver of popular culture these days uh, from the musical Hamilton to Game of Thrones. That word, that term, that notion of illegitimacy is kind of out there in the wind. So it got us thinking, well, first of all, from whence does it hail? I mean, how long has there even been such an idea and 
to what degree has it worked to the detriment of people who wore that label. So we've um, assembled an array of guests. We have a historian who's an expert on Hamilton uh, towards the end. We have uh, a writer uh, and science fiction reviewer who's an expert on Game of Thrones. And right now we have a historian who's an expert on bastards, Sarah McDougall, Associate Professor of History at John Jay College of Criminal Justice at City University of New York and author of Royal Bastards, The Birth of Illegitimacy, 800 to 2030. Uh, Sarah McDougall, thank, uh, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Colin. It's my pleasure. So um, this idea uh, of making a big fuss about someone of illegitimate birth, it, I mean, you see it, uh, from the title of your book, it's evident that it hasn't always been there. I mean, if it starts in 800. So, so explain a little bit uh, of the, the context of this. Um, when and why did people start caring about who was a bastard? So uh, it, it's complicated in that they, there's sort of different meanings of bastard and, and who is a bastard when and what that might entail, as I think you've already started to say. Um, but what I try to suggest in the book is that uh, earlier on, what mattered to people most was a difference in status between the parents. And so if you had a known father... Um, but an unknown or lower status mother, that was the kind of thing that got you called a bastard. Um, and that it's only towards the end of the period I'm writing about, so only in beginning in the 13th century, really, that anyone born to anything other than a legitimate marriage would have been called a bastard. And it's also around then that you start to have bastard as a, an insult, meaning jerk. Right. So, and we, and we know for for the period preceding this, well, we don't know. Uh, one could probably guess in the period preceding this that it wouldn't have necessarily been a huge impediment to be, in that more technical term, uh, a bastard, especially if you are a bastard created, as you say, by pe- two people of high birth as opposed to one high and one low. I mean, one way we could kind of guess at it is it's, it's legend, not history, but Arthur in most tellings, King Arthur, is a bastard. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and so that would have been happening, you know, what, 6th or maybe 5th century in the legend, but the tellings are right in the wheelhouse of your period, right? And in the tellings, nobody says, well, he can't be king of England, he's a bastard. Yeah, it's, it's enormously complicated because there's all these, these wild stories at the same moment um, that there are, for the first time, people being actually not allowed to inherit from their parents, which is, you know, the, the main consequence you would think of for illegitimacy the way we think of it, that there are these stories where they start to add to the legend of Arthur that his, he's the child of this, uh, adulterous premarital uh, re- relationship Wizard with his assistant, father too. in disguise as his uh, mother's husband. Mm-hmm. Right, a wizard-assisted uh, procreation, um, yeah. and and so yeah, so we've got that, um, and and th- there's another interesting thing, which is there there is maybe one date that might be kind of pivotal, and the good thing is you don't have to learn a new date because it's 1066. So oh. what is the what does William the Conqueror have to do with all this? So William the Conqueror has mattered for a long time for people because. Uh, with his conquest of England and becoming the King of England in addition to being the Duke of Normandy, he is supposed to be the last 
bastard to have managed to become king of England. Um, and certainly in some sense that's true, but what people minded about him wasn't that his parents weren't mar- married. They minded that he had a low-status mother. His mother um, was the daughter of either a, a tanner or an undertaker, depending on how you translate the, the word that's used to describe him, and either way, it's very low status. And so the, William is actually insulted for being the son of a low-status mother, um, but he was a tough guy, uh, is one word for uh, how you would describe his character, and he was able to um, succeed militarily uh, in any case. Um, Does he actually the, change his own uh, sobriquet? Does he change it from... William the Bastard to William the Conqueror? Were there people calling him William the Bastard? There were people calling him William the Bastard. Um, It's hard to tell exactly when they stop. I mean, they continue to call him that after his death. Uh, I I wouldn't have called it that him that to his face. No, Um, a bad idea. I'm not. I'm not sure how offended he would have been because it really did. Uh, it, it meant he had a low-status mother. Um, it didn't necessarily mean more than that. Um, and it certainly didn't mean he couldn't be king of England. He had the support of the Pope in conquering England, uh, which sounds pretty good from a religious standpoint, at least. So, uh, although we should say, or maybe we shouldn't say, I'm just kind of guessing about this, but that, I mean, if you're a high-born male conceiving a child with a low-status woman, chances are you're not going to marry that woman. I mean, the, these two kind of, these two things go a little bit hand-in-hand, hand, or, or, or am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right, and that's exactly why uh, this has been so confusing to people for so long. So it looked to us like anything other than the child of marriage was an illegitimate child the way we think of it, with the same um, exclusion from inheritance as we would think of it. But what we're really seeing in in this, you know, pre-1200 period is that if your mother is low status, your father will have slept with her, and he might be willing to um, provide for you in some way, but he's not going to marry your mother because she's not worthy of of marriage in their, you know, incredibly snobby uh, attitudes. And so uh, you're not going to to be treated the same as would a child of a high-status mother. Um, And it's just hard for us to imagine that anyone would have cared that much about who somebody's mother was. But one of the funny things about medieval Europe is they cared immensely who your mother was. And so it was maternal lineage, who your mother was, who your mother's ancestors were, that determined how important you were um, if your father had, you know, had sex with a number of women and there was something to choose among. So now, a little bit later in this period, you know, we get into the 12th century, later 12th century, and and there starts to be some attempt at codification. Although, Sarah, I feel as though one of the problems is you can't define illegitimacy until you've established and have a working definition of legitimacy. And that seems to have been a little slippery at first. Again, you're you're absolutely right. Um, So there were a bunch of different ideas floating around about what made a legitimate marriage. Uh, Some of these ideas got canceled out, some of them didn't, but it took a very, very, very long time 
really well beyond my period for things to get particularly clear. And so there were ideas like it was not legitimate to marry a foreigner. I mean, that one doesn't last very long, but it is there. There's an idea that it's not legitimate if you're marrying a slave and you're free, or even that two slaves can't marry each other. And then there's 800 different ideas about what might count as an incestuous marriage, um, you know, either as something as obvious as brother or sister, which maybe we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. or um, second cousin, third cousin, fourth cousin, fifth cousin, godparent, child of a godparent. And so with all of these ideas floating around, um, even within the same legal systems, it was extremely hard to have some clear idea of what made a legitimate marriage. And if it wasn't clear what a legitimate marriage was, it's extremely hard to say who isn't isn't a legitimate child. Right. So one possible narrative, which you don't buy, I believe, is that the church wound up cooking up all this stuff. The church basically said, all right, this is the way it's going to be. All this other stuff over here is incest and it's bad. uh, And this is what legitimacy is going to be. And if you're not legitimate, uh, you can be dispossessed. You can lose your place in the line of succession, yada, yada, yada. And all the people on this temporal side said, oh, Okay, well, we were having a lot of fun doing the other thing, but if you insist, that's the way we'll do it. You know, you don't really buy that ecclesiastical dominance model. No, I don't. Um, so what I, what I do think is that certainly if you read canon law, the law of the Catholic Church, there's a lot of that language in there. Um, but you have to, it's very boring, you have to sit and read the whole law. You can't just read uh, the one sentence where they say, you know, children of concubines um, should get nothing. You have to read the whole text, and the whole text basically says, please get married. What we're asking you to do is please get married, and please get married to someone who's not already married to someone else, someone who's not a nun, someone who's not a priest, you know, pretty, 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 please. Um, So the language is there, but it's not... It's not an initiative of the Catholic Church at the time to make sure that that language is applied. They'll go around saying, you're married illegally, you're married illegally, you're married illegally, but they'll never go around and saying, you can't inherit, you can't inherit, you can't inherit. That's something that uh, people in the 13th century essentially start doing to each other. You know, there's an aunt who wants to make sure her nieces can't uh, make a claim on some property, and so she says, well, your parents were married illegally, and therefore you can't inherit, uh, and so on. And so the role of the Church is more that people ask the Pope or bishops to make a ruling, but it's the, um, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the families themselves who are making the claims and seeking that. So, yes, uh, I shouldn't go too far. The, the church ideas are being used, but they're not being used uh, because that was the agenda necessarily. The, church, uh, the, the Catholic authorities were mostly just trying to get people to get married <laughs> right. and to get married to someone who wasn't a nun or a monk. It doesn't seem too much to ask. And that example you used was not completely fanciful, right? Towards the end of the 12th century, uh, there was, I think, a regent countess uh, of yes. Champagne. You want to quickly flesh that one up? Oh, sure. So she's a, a fun one. Um, so she's actually from the Kingdom of Navarre in Iberia. 
and she's married to a younger son um, who is sort of given the county of Champagne so his older brother can go fight in the Crusades. And while his older brother is out fighting the Crusades, he actually marries the heiress of Jerusalem, a princess, uh, who somebody needs to make a movie about. And, um, and they have children together, and then he dies. Uh, and it's those daughters of that marriage, the Jerusalem and older brother Champagne marriage, uh, who eventually try to claim the county of Champagne back from this region countess. And she responds by saying that their uh, parents married illegally because that heiress of Jerusalem had two prior husbands, one of them still living at the time, um, which is, you know, even worse than bigamy. So uh, that was her accusation. Um, And it it works a little bit. I mean, mostly there has to be a pretty nasty civil war with that countess actually leading troops and burning towns and and things like that. And then she has to pay both of the sisters a huge amount of money to get them to renounce the claim. Uh, You know, as we go along a little further in history and move a little bit out of the period that forms the the boundaries of of, uh, your published scholarship, it seems as though the rules get more more important and the people, no matter how important they think they are, get less important. I mean, I think you cite uh, Louis XIV wanting to promote a bastard and basically being told, no, rules are rules, right? Yeah, it does. It does start to actually be the case that rules are rules. Um, it, it certainly does, and it does start to be the case that it becomes very hard for someone born outside of marriage um, to to inherit, to become a king, to become uh, a ruler of some other kind or a government official. Although certainly there are exceptions. Uh, and uh, there are also a bunch of legal mechanisms that the, that are developed to try to help these people, but there are le- legal mechanisms that have to be developed because these rules are actually starting to ma- matter. So do we know, I'll just ask you this last question, then we'll take a break and we'll switch over a little bit to the fictional realm, but also stay a little bit in the, so do we, I, I, I look at the Restoration, which is also outside the period of your scholarship, but I, I look at James Scott, Duke of Monmouth, and, and one of the things that appears is that um, although he was a bastard, he might have been kind of reasonably popular with the populace. Now, some of that had to, might have also had to do with religion. Um, he was probably the right religion to command loyalties, but I'm also wondering if the average peasant you know could pick did the average peasant care very much i don't we may not know this but the did the average peasant care very much whether somebody was of legitimate birth or not or was that something that was just you know debated and worried about in these rarefied uh courts uh, of of nobility i well i would always want to know more what the average peasant Thought, and it, it drives me crazy that I that I have to struggle so hard to find it out, and it's certainly more what my current research is doing. But I do think I think they probably were certainly snobs in the same way that a lot of other people were, in that lineage seemed to mean legitimacy to them. Right. And whether or not they were willing to draw the line at a bastard. I think probably depended often on the circumstances. And as you said, a Protestant son with the right bloodlines, uh, although his mother was a little lacking uh, in propriety, one might say, um, 
might have looked better than a Catholic with the same bloodlines? It's it's a tricky question. Right. I mean, certainly there are other examples of um, uh, people of questionable lineage who do get popular support because they look close enough in times when, you know, an alternative is desired. Right. Well, I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the beheading in this case. So it didn't work out that well for Monmouth uh, anyway. All right. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. Sarah's going to stay with us. Uh, We're going to head to Westeros. So we are exploring the world of bastards, one of the places that bastards... Well, I should say before even we play this clip, we're going to play this clip in just a second, but um, that the notion of illegitimacy is a staple of literature. I mean, if you think about Shakespeare, you think about Edmund and Lear and Don John and Much Ado. Uh, Richard III tries to prove other people are bastards, I think. Uh, Tom Jones to to Garp. Uh, there almost aren't any Thomas Hardy novels that don't involve illegitimacy in some way. Every great writer dips his or her ladle into that stream now and again. But George R. R. Martin and the TV series uh, that derives from his uh, books, uh, Game of Thrones, you might have heard of it, uh, seems especially obsessed with bastards. Here's a montage uh, suggesting just that. Just a bastard. The bastard of Robert of the House Baratheon. King Robert's bastard son. Half Robert, half lowborn. Waldo, this is Ramsay Snow, my bastard. You little bastard. You, you're Ned Stark's bastard, aren't you? Lord Edward Stark is my father. And Lady Stark is not your mother, making you a bastard. A bastard boy with nothing to inherit. Off to join the ancient order of the Night's Watch. You're always welcome on the wall. No bastard was ever refused to see there. Some of you bear the names of proud houses. Others only bastard names and no names at all. You are a Stark. You might not have my name, but you have my blood. The flayed man is on our banners. My banners, not yours. You're not a Bolton, you're a Snow. What the hell do you know about being a bastard? All dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. Let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor. As you listen to that clip, by the way, a lot of the back and forth there, we'll get into this, a lot of the back and forth that you hear is between Jon Snow, who is the bastard son. Well, actually, he is at least presented to us as the bastard son of Ned Stark, uh, one of the uh, early, uh, heroes of the uh, early books and uh, early TV series. Um, he bears this name Snow for reasons that we will explain in just a second. And the person talking to him most often is Tyrion, Lan- Tyrion Lannister, played by Peter Dinklage. He is a little person, um, and he... Although you might hear in some of the, the the dialogue that you just heard a note of challenge, most of the time he's kind of trying to get Jon Snow to understand something about himself. And I think it's a thing that George R. R. Martin and the makers of this series want us to understand, too. So we're going to explore that a little bit. Sarah McDougal still with us, Associate Professor of History at John Jay College of Criminal Justice at City University of New York and the author of Royal Bastards, The Birth of Illegitimacy, 800 to 1230. And now Scott Andrews 
Davis joins us, writer and science fiction reviewer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, columnist for WinterIsComing.net, and the author of the Guild Leaders Handbook. So, Scott, I'm going to have you uh, kick things off here. There are, uh, by somebody's count, 29 different characters in Game of Thrones who could, in one way or another, bear the label of bastard. But it seems to me that the series is more about getting us, about exciting maybe our sympathies for people thrust into that position as opposed, although some of them are completely hateful. But maybe you can talk a little bit about that, about that underdog notion, I guess. Yes. In the novels and in the show, the character Tyrion tells people, I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples and bastards and broken things. And Tyrion is often a surrogate for Martin. And in this case, these are really Martin's words. And he said in interviews that he's attracted to these characters because there's more drama in characters like that. There's more to struggle with. They're not just handed things because bastards in Westeros cannot inherit. They don't have any real prospects. The name that they're given is the bastard name, so they can't even use the coat of arms of their house that they're born into. And so, Sarah, this is... Game of Thrones is kind of an example of something that I think goes on a lot, which is the it, it presents as medieval, at least in terms of the technology being used there, the kinds of swords and, and modes of transportation that you see. It's at least allegedly somewhat based uh, on uh, the War of the Roses. But, uh, Sarah, it seems to me that many of the values, including the ones Scott is talking about right now, are our values in 2017, as opposed to anything some Somebody in the medieval era would have recognized? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely uh, almost as much about us as it is about Martin's imagined version of them. Um, but that's, that's part of what makes it so attractive and appealing and, and fun for us. Um, and, uh, Scott, it also seems that um, there's a kind of a sense here of, um, how can I put it, that... that uh, we're more sympathetic to people who are ultimately willing to live with the realities of, of what they are. So there's a character named, I'm not, this is not a spoiler, I won't wreck anything for you. There's a completely hateful character uh, named Ramsey Snow. Snow refers to the fact that he's a bastard. Scott is going to explain that to you in just a second. But he ultimately kind of gets promoted by his father. He just gets told, no, actually, you're a Bolton now. You're not a Snow anymore. I mean, even though technically he is, and that delights Ramsey. But we, we hate Ramsey. He's one of the most repellent characters uh, in the entire series. There's some way in which, Scott, I feel like Game of Thrones is exploiting our own distrust of dynastic politics. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and it's funny, I mean, Ramsay is really a foil for Jon Snow, um, and it's something that does come to a head. But, um, you know, Ramsay really wants to, to rise into the, the world of legitimacy um, to, to embrace that medieval concept of I am, um, I have this noble blood and therefore I deserve to get more. I have, you know, some kind of magical superiority. Um, whereas John is much more like, I, you know, I have this blood, but I want to earn my place in the world. I want to rise up through my own, um, my own competency, my own judgment, and my own ingenuity. And, you know, we see him take that path of, of joining the Night's Watch, 
Um, and actually, in order to join the Night's Watch, you have to give up all of your, your titles if you're noble. Um, so any claim that he might have had, uh, as we see, you know, you, you can, in some outside circumstances, rise up into the, the true nobility, as Ramsey does. Um, but John has to give that up in order to join the Night's Watch. So he's rejecting that world. He's, he's embracing the American ideal um, you know, people like Benjamin Franklin, who sort of created um, their own path and, and rose up because of their own um, yeah. bootstraps. Bootstraps or metal, yeah. yeah. So, um, so uh, one thing that I wanted to explore a, a little bit, too, is, it, and Sarah, this goes, goes back to what we were talking about before. I mean, the one thing that I think is preserved in Game of Thrones is that notion of the royal bastard, the high-born father and the less well, the the less the the lower status mother, right? Then and that that would have been both in Game of Thrones and in the real world of the historical period you write about. That's the real kind of flashpoint, right? There are all kinds of examples of other people who had, like Da Vinci, had a very complicated uh, background, but but it, and he certainly was not of fully legitimate birth. But that this royal bastard thing, Sarah, seems to be important, I guess, just because of succession. Yeah, well, it's succession. And then it's also just it's it's and I love what, what both of you were saying about the the way that we have this love hate, I hope increasingly hate feeling about uh, dynastic <laughs> succession. Oops. Um, in in that uh, there is this obsession with bloodlines and lineage and legitimacy, but at the same time we're seeing how it doesn't work, and, and we're seeing a way of trying to, to work your own way up via the Night Watch. And what's exciting as a medievalist is there are these wonderful parallels uh, from medieval Europe. So there were mechanisms by which uh, an illegitimate child could be made legitimate, something sort of like what happens with the Boltons, um, but then there's also, uh, they don't have a night watch, but there have these various religious and sort of religious military orders that you could join um, that were a way of making a start, and, and thousands and thousands of uh, people of questionable parentage did that. So, Scott, one of the things that I get, because I hadn't really grasped this, because I'm more of a TV watcher than a book reader in the case of Game of Thrones, is that, so Game of Thrones sets up this pattern of surnames for bastards. If you are a bastard, you don't obviously inherit the name Stark or, or Lannister. or uh, But what you do is you inherit a surname based on the region you're from. Is that how it works? Yes, it's actually, um, it's the region that you grow up most commonly uh, so in the north, there's snow, and that's why both John and Ramsey have the same last name. Uh, in Dorne, it's sand, and so we meet the character Alaria Sand, um, and the sand snakes, who are actually called that because they're all bastard-born. Um, there's others, there's pike, there's storm, there's rivers, waters, stone, um, but only you can only get one of these names if you're noble. So it was an indication that a person, you know, because there's so much emphasis on being noble or not, or being part of the small folk. So if you're a small folk, you will not get a name like this, no matter, you know, whether you're a bastard or not. Um, they are reserved only for people who have noble blood, either full noble blood or partial noble blood, born outside of marriage. And, and, so and it was a way of, um, of providing deniability for um, the father or the mother of the child who 
you know, it had this kid out of wedlock. If the, the son is named Stark, then it's pretty hard to say it's not Ned's child. But if you name it Snow, well, it could have been anyone's. And, and so in that family, anyway, that notion of regionalism uh, and, and I assume different different attitudes going along with geography, Sarah. I mean, the, the one that I can think of off the top of my head is, is Eva Perón. Uh, Eva Perón uh, yeah. was of illegitimate birth. But in Argentina, at a time where it, there was a little bit more latitude for a man, maybe having a few different families. Uh, I think Eva's father went back to his primary family. But but and I assume in, in Europe, um, in Spain, there would be a different attitude than there would be, say, in England. Yeah, absolutely. There's this whole uh, Mediterranean versus northern, uh, but not too far northern, right, because Scandinavian gets to have its own rules then mm-hmm. as now. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely the same kind of divide. And so medieval Liberia and, and its um, colonial enterprises in South America look a lot more like Dorn, whereas England looks a lot more like Westeros. Um, but certainly even there, it's it's better uh, to be a snow, uh, as you just heard, than to be, you know, a peasant. So, uh, and that too is like the Middle Ages, where uh, being called the Bastard of Burgundy was actually a compliment, not an insult. It meant you were more important than everyone except maybe the Duke of Burgundy. Um, so I, just before we run out of time, uh, Scott, uh, I think we're all kind of dancing around the same thing. Here in America, we have some kind of a distrust of dynasties. I mean, uh, and it's not just the Trump dynasty. It's it's we rejected another Clinton. Uh, Jeb Bush was clearly a Bush too far. You have to go back to the Kennedys <laughs> to find a dynasty that Americans had some kind of political comfort with. Do you think that that really is kind of what's woven into some of this stuff that's in Game of Thrones and its incredible popularity here anyway? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have, um, you know, Eric Trump telling us nepotism is a beautiful thing. Um, And uh, there was a a great quote by a political scientist, Henry Carey, who's a Georgia State University professor. And he says, uh, the presidency has always been prone to sultanistic tendencies. um, But instead of a team of rivals under Trump, um, he says it's akin to a medieval monarchy with decisions made by court politics and not legal procedures. And I think I um, it's interesting because um, what, what Martin does in Game of Thrones is he presents us with a series of leaders who inherited their title um, by right of birth and showing us all the many ways that these people are not suited for leadership. Um, um, Sarah, I heard something sotto voce. I've got about 30 seconds. Were you objecting on behalf of medievals? I was just, yeah, I was standing up for, for um, you know, we, we, we get a, we, we medievalists often deserve, you know, the Middle Ages was not a very nice place, not not a lot of nice people, um, but they were kind of keen on legal procedure. Um, so they, yeah. they, they wouldn't have... Uh, uh, taking some meetings, shall we say. All right. So that's a great place to stop with Sarah McDougall, author of Royal Bastards, The Birth of Illegitimacy, 800 to 1230. Scott Andrews, author of The Guild Leader's Handbook. All right. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back.
Today's show was produced by Josh Snow and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is the bastard of Poseidon. Our intern is Tim Cohn. The part of Bill Curry was played by Elton John. And now, back to Colin. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence, impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar The ten dollar, founding father without a father Got a lot farther by working a lot harder By being a lot smarter By being a self-starter by fourteen they placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered... All right, that, of course, uh, is from the musical Hamilton. Uh, and uh, you may note the fourth word uh, of that first song is bastard. That is part of the identity of Alexander Hamilton. Here to tell us more about this, not the first time she's appeared on this show to talk about Alexander Hamilton either, even uh, is Joanne Freeman, a professor of history and American studies at Yale University, co-author of The Essential Hamilton, Letters and Other Writings. I might add that she is also the favorite professor ever of Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, according to Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin. So your just distinctions and awards, Joanne, just keep piling up here. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and I should say that before we went on the air, we established that you remember Luke Bronin very well, too. So, so he wasn't lying. Let's talk a little bit about, first of all, what level of stigmatization attached itself to bastards at the time of the life of Alexander Hamilton. How bad a thing was that to be? Well, I mean, it's a good question. It partly depended on, I think, your rank in society, which sounds like it's sort of reverse logic, but someone like Hamilton is a great example of this. So he's someone who came from really modest origins, but had very elite and powerful mentors. And in a way, he courted that, so he did himself a lot of big favors. But because of that, and because he was at a high level of society and had these people behind him, I don't think it had an enormous influence on his accomplishments, it could have had an enormous influence on someone else's, because early America in particular, it was kind of a localized world. And, you know, if you were born in a town somewhere in Massachusetts, you probably knew the families that were in that town that, that went way back. And so someone who was a bastard, someone who came from far away, someone who was out of the norm, for some people might have been upsetting. Right. So he's got all kinds of things. I mean, as that song suggests, he's got a bunch of things that kind of collaborate or coalesce uh, around him to create at least some kind of hurdle or obstacle to be overcome. I mean, not only is he a bastard, maybe you can quickly explain the circumstances and locale uh, of his birth. So Hamilton was born, probably, on the island of Nevis. We have very limited information about his origins. And his father was Scottish, and his mother was French Huguenot, and supposedly either they didn't marry or their marriage was not legitimate, but in one way or another, they weren't married. And they had two kids, and then uh, when Hamilton was a little bit older, the father appears to have just left the family. By that time, they were on St. Croix. Uh, and not long after that, his mother died. So he starts out being illegitimate. They're not very well off. The father leaves, and they become even less well off. And then he's orphaned. So he has all of this going against him, plus he's in the Caribbean and he doesn't know how the heck he's going to get out of there and someplace else so that he can, as he wanted to at a really young age, so he can accomplish great things, you know, so he can sort of start a life. 
Right. He obviously has this uh, sense of destiny uh, imprinted inside himself. We should say that obviously, as as this show has already established, I mean, bastards or illegitimacy, uh, I mean, that it's always been a thing. It's had a different meaning uh, at different times. So it's not as though – and Thomas Paine was, I believe, of, you know, quote unquote, illegitimate, illegitimate birth. Actually, there was a term mushroom gentleman. Do I have that right? That's one of my favorites. Some people would have considered Hamilton a mushroom gentleman. What it meant is, um, and it's not necessarily tied to being a bastard, but it is tied to coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So a, a mushroom gentleman is someone who sprouts up kind of in the dark, doesn't really have roots, <laughs> <laughs> seems to appear overnight, um, and, and is someone altogether not trustworthy. And so Hamilton certainly could have fit into that category if someone wanted to call him that. We don't have to be in total doubt about what this meant internally to Alexander Hamilton, Joanne Freeman, uh, your book, The Essential Hamilton, Letters and Other Writings. We have a letter in his hand, right? Uh, Maybe even the earliest letter we have in Hamilton's hand that suggests anyway that he sees this as one of the mountains he has to climb, right? Well, for sure, we have written evidence, and that's a great way to put it, that he sees his illegitimate birth as a mountain he has to climb. The most interesting letter on that front comes later in his life, not long before the presidential election of 1800, before presidential election. Surprise, surprise, politics was really heated and nasty (laughs) all the way back. And in the nastiness leading up to this election, somehow or other, his birth clearly comes up. And it's clearly not the first time that, that there have been these whispers and things behind the scenes. Um, John Adams very famously called Hamilton the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. So in this letter from 1800, Hamilton essentially says to a friend, look, here's the story. I'm tired of this. People keep talking about this. So here's the story of my background. And he explains that story, and he claims his parents got married, but that the marriage wasn't legitimate because his mother didn't divorce the first husband, which could very well be true. And he's very careful in that statement to say, you know, my father was from a fine Scottish family, so he's placing himself on a level that he thinks he deserves to be on, but he does acknowledge there, number one, that it's true, but more interesting and more important than that, number two, that people keep, in one way or another, sort of tossing it at him as a way to get at him. Right. So we know he's a fractious person who has many enemies. And so it's it's difficult to know. I mean, these things, they, they form this odd triad, right? The, the, on the one hand, there is what you think of yourself, you know, and only Hamilton truly knows this, but it does surface in, in a few of these letters. And then there's what people think about you, which may be very different from what you think about it. It may be a less important thing in terms of the way the world and others understand your identity. And then probably the third point uh, of that triangle angle is what people might hurl at you since right. it's, it's an available brick bat to throw. And that's kind of what you're talking about here, right? It might, might be the, I, I mean, I don't know if being a bastard was that horrible, could he have married a Skylar sister, you know? Right, exactly. Well, and there were other people, as you said, I don't know that much about Thomas Paine's origins, but there are other bastard children of people floating around in the historical record who are there because they've left a mark, right? So yeah, I don't think being a bastard would have denied him anything, but I think you're totally right, particularly for somebody who was extremely ambitious, as he was, and who um, was kind of an aggressive, you know, confrontational kind of a guy, yeah, then that would be something you could certainly throw at someone, and it would not be something that anyone would be proud of. And he was so touchy about his reputation because of his humble origins that probably the people throwing that around knew 
that that would really get at him, and that's part of why they poked at that vulnerability. As a historian, do you feel as though, and feel free to repudiate and reject this this conjecture on my part, that in some ways Hamilton's kind of symbolic of a moment that, you know, for all of the democratizing qualities of a new world and starting a new world, an awful lot of the new world of the colonial hierarchy leading up to the time of the revolution and going beyond it were people who had some kind of demarcated lineage, people who, you know, who had people, who were from people. Is Hamilton maybe, and a few others of that time, are they kind of heralds of a slightly more flattening trend or am I ascribing way too much to to that idea? Well, I think you're right in the sense that it's tempting to think about the founding of the American Republic as this moment where we throw away the English past and sort of forge ahead into modern American values, which, of course, is, as you're suggesting, is not the case at all. <laughs> and the past, I think the French, at one time I found a letter in which the French referred to what they called English rust <laughs> in America, that there was this rust from the British past that wasn't leaving, you know, that was still there. So I think that part of what we're seeing here is the sense of long-standing tradition matters. On the other hand, I think you're right that someone like Hamilton could appear and promote himself in this shaken-up environment where everything is changing and really take advantage of it and, and move up in a way that he couldn't have probably if he were in England. So it's a little bit of both, I think. So we have to say that, I mean, we opened by playing uh, a few bars of the musical Hamilton. Uh, This is something we've talked about with you in the past. But you've actually had the experience of sitting there in the audience and like hearing your book, right? I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, being the scholar he is, uh, your book's right up there on stage. Yes, it was a surprise. It was interesting. So there's a song about the rules of dueling, and that's something I'm an expert on and wrote a chapter on that in my book, Affairs of Honor. And there's a little section where I just detail what the rules are. And so, yeah, when I saw the show and they started singing about the rules of dueling, I heard some of those rules and I thought, wow, that that sounds so much like my book. And then there's a detail in that song that came from a document that I found at the New York Historical Society. So when that appeared, then I thought, that actually is stuff that he read from my book. So, yeah, as a historian, it's nice to know that your books are being read (laughs) and, and used and that the information in them, talk about having contemporary value, that certainly had an impact. I'm trying to remember the lyrics of the song, but it has something about, uh, I know there's something about the doctor, so he has deniability. Uh, exactly, exactly. There's a, a phrase about how during a duel that the doctor turns his back on the duel so that he has deniability. I found a document in the New York Historical Society of the court case of Burr's second, and the doctor testifies at that trial, and the doctor says, you know, his back was to the dueling ground, so when he's asked, what did you see, he says, oh, nothing. <laughs> I heard some gunshots. <laughs> I didn't see anything. So it worked. <laughs> or it worked for him. Yeah, no. So, Joanne Freeman, I mean, this Hamilton that we're getting to know better, and I mean, really, it is, it's one of the reasons we're doing this show. I mean, could there be two bigger juggernauts of popular culture than Game of Thrones and Hamilton? They both do include this notion of a bastard or bastards. And in the introduction to your book, The Essential Hamilton, you describe him as impulsive, touchy, arrogant, ambition-driven, rarely heeding, or even asking for advice. I'm trying to think of somebody in modern life.
life that that reminds me of. But anyway, an unapologetic extremist with a risque love life, trajectory of highs and lows that seem like the stuff of fiction. I mean, once again, I think we have to go back to this question. We'll never know what kind of piece of that being a bastard was, but clearly his his inappropriate or less than perfect set of origins, his origin story, it must contribute at minimum, right, to at least the touchiness, the jumpiness. Well, right. I mean, that's, as a historian, you want always evidence of some kind. So in this level, you, you know, you risk moving into the world of psychobiography. But I think you can say without necessarily taking a full plunge into that world, that if you see someone like Hamilton, who over the course of his life, before his final duel with Aaron Burr, got into near duels 10 times, Mm. That's, that's a lot, even in the 18th century. So that's a person who is absolutely, even on paper, a touchy, touchy person. Why would he be touchy? Well, for sure. You have to know that it has to do with this feeling that he thinks is his vulnerability. I mean, I always talk about him as being a guy sort of operating on the high wire without a safety net because he had nothing to fall back on, really. After he marries into the Schuyler family, then he has that there. But even then, you know, there's a lot of letters of his in which he clearly feels a little squirmy about how much he should or shouldn't rely on Philip Schuyler's father-in-law. So I think he felt that he was a guy who was operating without a safety net. And so, yeah, that made him touchy and that made him, um, if someone stabbed at his reputation, he was in their face immediately. You know, that's, you can't do that. That's mine. I rely on that. Step back, you know, and most people did. <laughs> Aaron Burr didn't, but many people did. No, there's a scrappiness there that reminds you a little bit of D'Artagnan, you know, the young Gascon hothead uh, who comes to Paris and feels he has to fight partly to make his name. And so one of the other ways we know that this was not a non-factor is his eulogy, right? The uh, person who delivered his eulogy after said duel with Aaron Burr, what, sort of steered away from this whole subject? Yeah, there's a really interesting diary account by a fellow named Gouverneur Morris who uh, did the eulogy at Hamilton's funeral and left behind this wonderful account of trying to figure out what he should say and sort of keeps going back and forth between what he can't say. (laughs) So, you know, he says, well, Hamilton, he really did admire kings. You could say, in a sense, he was a monarchist. Boy, I can't really say that. Uh, and then, you know, there's this aspect of his politics that everyone hated, so I can't really touch on that. I can't remember for the life of me right now the words that he uses, but certainly you get the sense in that diary entry that Hamilton's origins and background are yet another thing that, well, uh, that's sure not going to mention that. I mean, he really, the diary account is not as entertaining as it sounds. It actually is, is Morris, who's really kind of tormented about, you know, this is a huge funeral. Hamilton was a significant figure. Everyone was going to be there listening to what he had to say, and he honestly couldn't figure out what he could say about Hamilton that wouldn't get people upset, which is really um, (laughs) telling about Hamilton, I think. It is indeed. And so we're going to stop there. And this is actually the end also of our show about bastards. Uh, But thank you so much, uh, Joanne Freeman, professor of history and American studies at Yale University, co-author of The Essential Hamilton Letters and Other Writings. Thanks to everybody else who helped out on this show, especially Josh Nalea. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow unless for some reason we, we don't show up.